If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 18, to verse 15. Let me just remind you where we are. In chapter 17, God said, If you will just keep my Sabbath, then I will never destroy Jerusalem. The city will remain forever. I will never destroy the temple. I will never keep a descendant of David from sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. And all will be well. And the people said, no, you're asking too much. We will not do it. Keep the Sabbath? Absolutely not. In fact, in verse 12, they say, it's of no use even calling us to repent. We will simply not do it. We're going to walk the way we want to walk, and there's nothing you can do about it, God. We don't care. Chapter 17, starting in verse 21 through verse 27. Yep. Verse 21 of chapter 17 begins, Thus says the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And it goes down to all those promises. The city will remain. The temple will remain. The throne of David will remain. But then it gets down to verse 27. It says, But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath, such as not carry a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in his gates and shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Which means, if you wait till it's too late, there is no stopping judgment. And that's a lot about what the next couple of chapters in Jeremiah are about. If you want to repent, repent before it's too late. How many people in the tribulation period will take the mark of the beast and then want to repent? At that point, it's too late. There is no repentance. They liken it to Jacob and Esau. Esau despised his birthright, but then later on, he wanted it back. And the scripture says no matter how much he pleaded, he can't get it back. Once it's gone, it's gone. Right, said he found no place of repentance despite all those tears. He wanted, but he couldn't get it because it was too late. And it's in chapter 18, verse 12, that it says in our English Bible, that is hopeless, but it means that is of no use. That is calling us to repentance is of no use. And I want you to look at verse 13, which begins, Therefore, thus says the Lord, whose words are these? These are the Lord's words. This is a prophecy. What do you know about the Lord's prophets from Deuteronomy 18? Can they have a 50-50 record? No, they must be correct how much of the time? All of the time. So verse 15, which is where we start tonight, says, Because my people have forgotten me. They have forgotten me. Keep a finger here. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. From which Messiah himself quotes. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Well, how, what does it mean to the Lord that we forgot him? It's Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 11. Let me give you a chance to find it. It says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by. What does that word by indicate? This is how you forget the Lord your God. Is it that we forget he exists? 
did those who were at the foot of Mount Sinai when God came down upon the mountain in Exodus 19 and it was on fire and it shook and they were terrified to the core, did they forget there was a God in heaven? No. By not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. That's going to play right into verse 15. So back to Deuteronomy 18, 15. Because my people have forgotten me. What indicates they've forgotten him? They've turned away from God's commandments. They put idolatrous images into his temple. They're slaughtering innocent babies, sacrificing them to the pagan god Moloch. They're committing sexual immorality. They have no use for God. And God says, if you'll at least keep my Sabbath, they said, no, no, you're asking too much. Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols. Which idols does God call worthless? All of them. Because what do the idols do for the people? Nothing. And they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways. Notice in verse 12 they said, We will walk according to our own plans and we will every, everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. That's what he means by they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways. They decided we'll do what we want to do and God will just have to take us like we are. After all, doesn't God love everybody? And everybody's going to heaven? He gets us. Yeah, not everybody's going. Yeah, I, I heard about that commercial, yeah. But now, here comes the verse and the portion of the verse that's really caused me to get up on my soapbox. And they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths. That word ancient is the Hebrew word olam. And it actually means the paths of eternity. That is from eternity past to eternity future. There is one way. And it's not my way or your way. It's God's way. There is only one acceptable way. The way of righteousness is eternal. There have been a lot of preachers this very week that have taught on righteousness. That righteousness has nothing to do with whether we sin or don't sin. It's whether we've accepted Messiah and then God gives Messiah's righteousness to us and then we can go out and play in all the sins of the world we want and God doesn't see that. He only sees the righteousness of Messiah that covers us. Is that what the Bible teaches? It is not. It goes on to say to walk in pathways and not on a highway. To walk in pathways means a dangerous way to walk. A way of death and danger and peril, rather than the highway, which is the way of safety. What does the scripture say? A highway of righteousness, a path of righteousness. But let's go start looking at some of the scriptures. Wayne. Yes, sir. You know, I just had in here, I did a piece um, on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I was, I, I did the whole piece. It went down very well. But what really saddened me was someone who is... Um, I mean, you know, she loves the Lord and all sorts of things. And she said, do you know, I never realized that righteousness was all the way through the Old Testament. Really? 
that she actually said that. I was, I was really stunned because, uh, you know, uh, oh dear. Yeah. Well, you know what we're about to do, Edmund. We're about to look through the Old Testament and start there and see what the path of righteousness always has been. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter six, which, as you probably guessed, is right before Deuteronomy eight. Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25. Then it will be righteousness for us. What's that next little word? If. If we are careful to observe all these commandments. That's not what the Hebrew says. If we're careful to observe all this commandment. In Deuteronomy 6, God says all the commandments summarize into one. You can't subdivide it. One of the big teachings of today as well. Well, well Wayne, um, you got to remember there are moral commandments. There are ceremonial commandments. There are civil commandments. And God doesn't want us to follow two of those three branches. Just the moral ones. To which I say... Oh, really? Which verse is that? Which, which the case they say, well, shut up. I won't talk anymore. But it says, if we're careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Does our works bring righteousness? The answer is no. But our salvation by faith is evidenced by righteousness in our walk. Let's go to Psalm 111. Psalm 111. I know people keep telling me, Wayne, you teach people salvations by works. No, I don't. Never have. That's the first thing I'll tell you. Salvation is by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. But the question then is, if you're saved by faith, then how do you walk? The answer that most theologians give is, well, you walk in sin. That's fine. God doesn't care anymore. And I say, where's that in Scripture? And I say, shut up. Don't want to talk anymore. But Psalm 111, verse 3, says, His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures how long? Forever. God's way of righteousness, which He established by giving us the Torah, the word Torah gets translated into our English Bibles as law, but what it actually means is instruction in righteousness. You enter into a covenantal relationship with God by faith as they did in Exodus 19. God didn't give the commandments until Exodus chapter 20 when their question is, okay, we've entered into a covenant with God, now how should we walk? What does God want us to do? He said, here it is. Then God laid these burdensome commandments on us, right? Aren't they horrible? What does 1 John chapter 5 say? What is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are? Not burdensome. They're supposed to be a joy. So Psalm 111.3, his work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 112, verse 3. Wealth and riches will be in his house. Yeah, what are the streets of the new Jerusalem made out of? Gold. What are the gates and foundations made out of? Pearls and precious stones. 
So wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures. How long? Forever. Same chapter, Psalm 112, verse 9. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. His righteousness endures forever relates right back to verse 1 of this same Psalm 112. It says, praise the Lord. What's that in Hebrew? Y'all know. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Blessed is the man who what? Fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Good. What was that? That was Psalm 112. We looked at verse 9 and then related that back to verse 1 of that very same chapter. Yep, if I get going too fast, you know what to do. <laughs> right fast. No, that's not it. Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51. Is the rapture this year? We'll see. We'll see. But one thing I know is we want to be ready for it just in case. Does it ever hurt to be ready too soon? No. Does it hurt to be ready too late? Yeah. Okay. So Isaiah 51 verse 6. Thumbs up. It says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. Do it. Everybody look up to the heavens and look down to the earth beneath. What did God call the heavens and the earth to be? Witnesses. Because heaven and earth will be here forever. To show that God's word did not change. It says, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke and the earth will grow old like a garment. That's at the end of the millennial kingdom and not before. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Not even by the church. Right, which means his righteousness will be for how long? Forever. Forever. Literally, will not be broken. Same chapter, Isaiah chapter 51. Go down to verse 8. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Just with those verses we've looked at so far, does God's definition of what righteousness is change over time? No. no. Well, why do we start? We start out in Jeremiah saying it is an eternal path. It's a path of eternity. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12. Don't you like prophecies that have a promise? A promise that you can claim. Because if God prophesied it, you know what? It's going to come to pass. It will. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament 
And those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. So those who turn many to be obedient to God's commandments, statutes, and judgments are going to shine like the stars for how long? Forever and ever. That's never ending, even into the new heavens and the new earth. Never ever to end. How would you like that to be written about you? They can't make it your obituary because you'll never die. <laughs> That's right. You would never die. Okay. Carrying on. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. What does the name Hosea mean? It means salvation. Comes right after Daniel. Right before Joel. Hosea chapter 2. Verse 19. How does God look upon the believers? As his bride, right? Hosea chapter 2 verse 19 says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. Which means righteousness, justice, loving kindness and mercy must last for how long? Forever. Let's go up to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 9. We'll go to chapter 9. Take the short route. As it is written. Where is it written? Chapter 9 verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 9. As it is written. Is that written in Shakespeare's plays? How about Bradbury's science fiction? No, it's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, right? It says he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's from Psalm 112. Verse 9. Why would Paul quote from the Old Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 9? Well, that's all they had. That's a good reason. Is he saying this is obsolete, irrelevant to you? No. The church at Corinth, were they Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, You know that you were Gentiles, carried away whatever false gods you were led. So Paul quotes from the Old Testament to the believers out of the Gentile world to say these words are as applicable to you as they were to Israel in the past. Is God not just the God of Israel? Or is he the God of all people? He's the only God, which means he's the God of all people. That's right. His righteousness endures forever. Let's go back to Psalm 119. Normally I don't take you back and forth between the Old and the New Testament unless I'm trying to show you it's the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 119. 
What is all of Psalm 119 about? Blessed is the man who follows God's commandments. He will be happy come judgment day that he did. Psalm 119, which is a very long chapter. So we'll start in verse 33. Psalm 119, verse 33. That's the one thing I noticed when I started following along, when Daniel was teaching, following the Bible on my phone, is you got to know where the verse is before you can get there. You can't just pull up a chapter in some of those apps. So Psalm 119, verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. If I'm going to keep the way of the Lord, if I'm going to keep his statutes, if I'm going to keep his law to the end, that means how long do they go on? Forever. Psalm 119, verses 44 to 45. Psalm 119, verses 44 to 45. So shall I keep your law continually forever and ever. You know what that means? That means the law does not end at the new heavens and the new earth. It goes on into eternity future. And I will walk at liberty. The commandments are not binding, burdensome, horrible things they bring liberty. James refers to the law of liberty. He's talking about the Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. And I will walk at liberty for because I seek your precepts. That is, I seek God's commandments and that allows me to walk at liberty. Keep a finger here and turn up to Isaiah 66. Don't lose your place in Psalms because we're coming back. Isaiah chapter 66, which is a chapter that talks about the new heavens and the new earth. There's not a lot written in scripture about what happens after the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 66 happens to be one of those that does discuss it. Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 22. Which says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. How long is that? Forever and ever into eternity future. Says the Lord, So shall your descendants and your name remain. That refers to Israel. They will remain as a nation and as a people. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. How long will Sabbath go on? As long as the new heavens and the new earth go on, which is forever and ever. All flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord, which means the feasts and the festivals will go on forever and ever. Okay, back to Psalms. We were in 119. That's where we want to go back to. 
Psalm 119, verses 89 to 90. Psalm 119, verses 89 to 90. Which says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Does the word settle mean unsure? Changing constantly? Or does it mean steadfast? Goes on to say, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. So, so long as there are generations, which is into the new heavens, the new earth, the eternity, future, God's faithfulness will never, ever end. Still in Psalm 119, go to verse 112. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. What's the very end? Yeah, yeah it never comes. The very end never comes. To the uttermost. How many of you are familiar with the mathematical concept of eternity? Yeah. When does eternity end? It doesn't. And that's what this is trying to say is, if eternity ever ends, then it'll stop. And we know eternity never stops. Same chapter, Psalm 119, go to verse 144. And stop at 142 on the way. So we'll look at 142 first. It says, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. It lasts how long? Everlasting means forever. And your law, your Torah, is truth. For how long? Till Messiah comes? No. Forever. And 144 says, the, test, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. By testimonies, they're talking about the Ten Commandments that all those at Mount Sinai heard with their own ears. That's why he calls them the testimonies. You heard them with your own ears. Give me understanding and I shall live. Same as Psalm 119, verse 152. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Meaning God's commandments. They may have been established from time immemorial, but they never ever end and they never change. What if somebody walked through that door tonight and said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, your risen Lord, and God now wants you to murder everybody you come across? How many would go, hey, that's really the Lord? Or we go, oh no, it's not. How would we know it's not? Because the scripture says that somebody will try and teach us that God's law has been changed and it's not Messiah, is it? No, it's not. Stay in Psalm 119. I thought it would be easy. Verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. What portion of God's word is true? The entirety of your word is truth. 
and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Every one. Verse 172, still in Psalm 119. My tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. What's the significance of that? The scriptures, how many do we see that said God's righteousness lasts for how long? Forever. Just those verses. Totally. Those verses totally do what? Totally underline the fact that Yeshua did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. He did not come to destroy the law of the prophets. He came to fulfill. What's that word fulfill mean? To fully and correctly teach. Anyone who who can read and read the Psalms, which many Christians claim they read them every month, how can you read them and then say, oh, but this one doesn't count, this one doesn't apply, and you don't have to do this one, and this one was only the dietary. How can you do that? Let me tell you how. Go back to Psalm 119, verse 1. Very famous preacher was teaching through the book of the Psalms, verse by verse. And when he got to Psalm 119, I just had to turn it on and watch to see what he's going to do with it. He read verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. So what this means is, how dare you come to church on Sunday morning and not bring your Bible? That's what this verse says. Is that anything close to what this verse says? No. The word blessed is actually happy. It's ashray. So happy on judgment day are those that are tamim, without spot or blemish, in God's way, who walk in the law, the Torah of the Lord. But because that's so contrary to his theology, he said, oh, how dare you come to church on Sunday morning without bringing your Bible. That's how they do it. They simply ignore what it says and teach people it says something different. Like Dr. Reagan. Y'all know Dr. Reagan, right? He's a famous old teacher. I really enjoy him. He said he grew up in a church that taught that Jesus will never return to this earth again. And when he was about Gavin's age, he went up to the preacher and said, right here in Zechariah 14, it says he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and it cleaves in two. What does that mean? He said the preacher thought and thought and thought and said, well, I'll tell you, I don't know what that means. But what I do know is that Jesus will never set his feet on this earth again. So Reagan went on to seminary and became a pastor and taught that Jesus will never set his feet on this earth again. And he said, one Sunday, an old lady came up and said, Pastor, I was reading through the Bible this week, and I saw in Zechariah 14, it says the Lord's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's going to cleave in two. What does that mean? He said, I'll tell you, ma'am, I don't know what that means. But Jesus is never going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. And he said, later, he started thinking about it, going, what we're doing is saying, ignore the scripture to follow church doctrine. When clearly the church doctrine is wrong. So that's when he changed denominations. If a denomination exalts denominational doctrine over the word of God, you're in the wrong place. 
church doctrine should be based upon the word of God. And most of you out there would go, well, surely it is, but I can tell you. I've told you before my experience at the First Methodist Church in Prattville, Alabama, where the head of the adult Sunday school had asked me to come speak to them about what's really written in the Word of God. And the pastor stopped me at the door and said, you can't come in here. You're going to teach the Bible, and our doctrine is not based on the Bible. And if you come teaching the Bible, you're going to have people asking all kinds of questions I don't want to answer, so you can't come in. So get back in your car and leave. Okay, ignoring that. Let's go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Chapter 18. We're up to verse 16. Verse 16 says, To make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. He's saying it's going to be like the northern kingdom of Israel who were taken captive by the Assyrians and haven't been heard from since. They don't return back to the land until Ezekiel chapter 37 when Messiah returns. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 11. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 11. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 11. We'll go verses 11 through 14. Thus says the Lord God, it's actually thus says my Lord, the Lord. Pound your fists and stamp your feet and say alas for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. For they shall fall by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Ooh, that sounds like Revelation 6, doesn't it? He who is far off shall die by the pestilence. That means the ones that are too far away to be killed by the sword, they'll die from disease. He who is near shall fall by the sword that is killed by the Assyrian invaders. And he who remains that is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus I will spend my fury upon him. Means it doesn't matter where you are, where you try and hide, you're going to die. The only question is how. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when they are slain among their idols, all around their altars, on every high hill and all the mountaintops, under every green tree and under every thick oak, wherever they offer sweet incense to all their idols. So I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate. Yes, more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla. In all their dwelling places, then they shall know that I am the Lord. That was 120 years or more before Jeremiah writes this in 18. And God's saying, remember what happened to the northern kingdom? You're next. And all the false prophets are saying, no, 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 God won't bring judgment upon us. And God's saying, remember them? They said the same thing. Actually, nobody that was alive in Jeremiah's day even remembered the northern kingdom and only heard about them. So why, in verse 16, does it say to make their land desolate and perpetual hissing? What caused that? Verse 15, because my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to worthless idols. They have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the paths that were from eternity past. In other words, from the beginning, God gave us his commandments. 
But then we had a choice. Will we keep them or will we not? And what happened when nations decided, no, we will not follow God's commandments? Changed ownership. Go back to Psalm again. Psalm 119, verse 126. Psalm 119, verse 126. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law, your Torah, as void. Whenever a nation takes the point that God's commandments are irrelevant, then look out for judgment. Does God still give us signs of displeasure on occasion? How many of you watched Jonathan Kahn's fairly recent teaching about the statue? Did you see it? The current pope is from a little town in South America. That little town in South America has a statue of Peter with the ring around his head and with the keys in his hand. And the day before the pope made his proclamation that it's okay now to bless homosexual unions, the day before, lightning struck that statue. Despite the fact there's lightning rods all around it, such that lightning can't hit the statue, but it did. And it knocked that halo from off the statue's head and burned off the right hand holding the keys of the kingdom. Uh, do you think God was trying to express some displeasure at what was coming? Yeah, I think so too. Back to Jeremiah 18, we're up to verse 17. Talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. It says, I will scatter them, that is the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah, as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not my face in the day of their calamity. You know what that means? I'll show them the back and not the face. Going away. God says, I will not help them. They will call on me when the invasion comes and they will see my backside. They will not see my face. I will not help. Why would God turn his back on the people? Because they turned their back on him. They chose to put their faith, their trust their loyalty, their love, in their pagan idols. And God says, let them save you. You know what those pagan idols are going to do for them? Not a thing. So, how do the people react? Let's look at verse 18. Then they said, they talking about the children of Israel, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, the people whom Jeremiah has been prophesying. Then they said, come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Meaning what? Let's shut him up. So that he won't preach repentance anymore. 
We don't want to repent. We don't want to leave our sins. Let's just shut up the prophet. It says, For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. They say nothing that Jeremiah prophesies will come to pass. We are going to be secure in our homes. We're going to be secure in our palaces. We're going to be secure in our temple. Not a bad thing is going to happen. Come, let us attack him with the tongue. And let us not give heed to any of his words. Yeah, we know. When God called Jeremiah, he said, they're not going to listen to you. You know what? God got another one right. They're not listening. But it's not like come judgment day they can't say they were not warned. Verse 19, Jeremiah now prays for help. Because the people want to kill Jeremiah. And Jeremiah knows it. So Jeremiah cries out in verse 19, Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Meaning, do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what they're planning to do to me, Lord? So Jeremiah prays for help. Verse 20 says, Shall evil be repaid for good? Meaning, will you allow them to Imprison me, to beat me, to kill me because I prophesied repentance. Because I told them how they could survive and the nation could survive. For they have dug a pit for my life. What's that mean? Pit for my life. How did you trap animals back in those days? For birds, you put up nets and they would fly into the nets. But for large animals, you dig pits with sharp stakes at the bottom and when the animal fell in the pit it would get stabbed through the stakes and die so they're saying they set up a trap for me they intend to kill me remember that I stood before you to speak good for them we wanted them to repent so they could be blessed you want to bless them you don't want to destroy them that's why you sent the prophets to them To turn away your wrath from them. What is repentance? Turn away? Wrath. Turns away judgment. Verse 21. Therefore deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Ooh, Jeremiah's mad. He says, go ahead and curse them. Bring the judgments upon them. You said you were going to. Come on, Lord. Let them have it. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death. Their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Is this what the prophet should be praying? No. But you see the frustration. Yeah, you can tell he's upset. These days, you find people all over the world that want to be prophets. In the Bible, people didn't usually put up their hand to say, Hey, can I be a prophet, please? Could you please excuse me? Yeah. Some of them went fishing if, when they were called to go prophesy. It was not a popular thing to do then. You know what? It's not a popular thing to do now to preach repentance. Not popular. So in verse 21, Jeremiah is praying, Lord, go ahead and curse them. Let the judgments flow. They deserve it. Verse 22. 
what they've said come back on them is what he's saying. Yeah, it's that old same juridical principle, isn't it? The old Haman principle. Right. Boo that, boo, yeah, boo. that which he determined to do to them will fall back upon Haman's own head. Yeah. It's not long till Purim. We've got to start thinking about it, huh? Okay. Verse 22. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them. Which means what? When the judgments I prophesied actually come and they see that I was telling the truth, they're going to cry out to God. They're going to say, help us, help us. What did the United States do on 9-11? God, help, help. Two weeks later. God? Don't you dare mention God in the press or in the schools or in the public domain. It says, for they have dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. I mean, they're plotting my destruction. Lord, don't let it happen. Yet, Lord, verse 23, you know all their counsel. Meaning you know everything they're planning to do. Which is against me to slay me. What does it mean to slay? To kill. To kill. Provide no atonement for their iniquity. Nor blot out their sin from your sight. But let them be overthrown before you. How many times did God say do not pray for them? Let's go back to Jeremiah 7.16. Jeremiah 7.16. Jeremiah 7 verse 16 says, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Jeremiah chapter 11 verse 14. I'm not sure we're going to hit them all, just three of them. Jeremiah chapter 11 verse 14. So do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them. In the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. And Jeremiah 14, 11. Jeremiah 14, 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people for their good. Now up to Jeremiah 18, 23. Jeremiah says, okay, Lord, I got it. I understand now. I'm not going to pray for their blessing. I'm going to pray that the judgment will fall. So God three times said, don't pray for their blessing. He says, yeah, you're right, ain't going to. The verse goes on to say, deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Deal thus with them means do just exactly what you said you were going to do, Lord. They deserve it. Let them have it. Chapter 19. Thus says the Lord. So here's the Lord's response to Jeremiah's prayer for, Go get them, Lord. Thus says the Lord. Go and get a potter's earthen flask. That word get is not exactly right. The word is konita and it means buy. So go and buy a potter's earthen flask. What does earthen mean? Clay. Made out of clay. What about a clay pot if you drop it on the ground? Right. It breaks. If it gets contaminated, you have to, you're supposed to destroy it anyhow. Yep. So go and buy a potter's earthen flask 
and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. Why? Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 14 for a minute. Sometimes God has a prophet not just speak words, but do something to physically demonstrate the prophecy. 1 Kings chapter 14. Verse 3. Also take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey. That word jar is the same word. But it says flask in Jeremiah 19. It means a jar. Sometimes we think of a flask today as a metal container. You put booze or something to carry in a pocket. It just means an earthen jar. I just wanted you to see that. Let's go back to chapter 19 to verse 2. And see why God wants him to buy an earthen jar. And he's supposed to take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. Actually, if I remember correctly from looking at the Hebrew, it's not the word psalm, it's take the elders. Why elders? What does potsherd mean? Broken pot. Potsherd is a piece of pottery that's been broken. If you go in Israel to Caesarea Maritama, there's the old Roman aqueduct, and you can find shards of Roman wine jars all over the place. So tourists always bring back pockets full of this broken pottery shards as souvenirs, and all Israel does says they say thank you for cleaning up the beach because <laughs> they're everywhere. Okay. So take the elders of the people and the elders of the priests. Those are those that are still in Jerusalem. Those that have refused to obey the commandment of God to go into the battle and captivity. That have refused God's commandment to repent. Have refused God's commandment to at least keep the Sabbath. It says, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. Valley in Hebrew is gay, G-E-Y. And Hinnom is the name of the valley just south of Jerusalem, Gehinom, which in Greek is Gehenna, which is where we get the English word hell, referring to the lake of fire. Because the Hinom Valley was where they burned the trash, so there was always a fire going in the Hinom Valley. And that's where they had the statues to Moloch, where they would take the children, they would lay them on the outstretched arms of the pagan god Moloch, which had a fire burning in its belly, they would slit the throat of the children and roll their screaming, bleeding bodies into the fire. God says, this is what I want you to think of when you think of the lake of fire. What you did to those children, that's what you got to look forward to. So go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate. Potsherd, that is where they took the broken pottery pieces. That was the trash dump. And proclaim there the words that I will tell you. Another word for the potsherd gate, another name for it is the dung gate. It's where you took the trash out. 
to be destroyed by burning. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30. I see pages still turning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into, that word there in Greek is Gehenna, it's Gehinom. Here they use the word hell. So talking about that continuously burning fire. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body should be cast into hell. It's just a way of saying stop sinning. Because you don't want to be burned alive in a lake of fire forever and ever. Matthew chapter 10. If you think people really around, went around chopping their hands on, they didn't do that. It just meant stop sinning. It would be better. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in that consuming lake of fire that they translate here as hell. This means that if one of these days all the believers are put on their knees with swords at their throat and they say renounce the Lord or die, then you choose death. They can only kill the body. And my old expression is, are you going to threaten me with heaven? I mean it. Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Matthew 23, 15 says, Woe, if you're not a horse, woe's bad. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Yes, sir, go ahead. A little story about the blessed when he went to Northern Ireland and uh, he told them he was going to go down where the wall was. Yeah. And they said, look, the IRA say they're going to shoot you if you do that. Praise the Lord, tea with Jesus, he said. Yeah. There you go. That's the right attitude. Do not fear the one that can kill the body but not the soul. Let your fear be for the one who can send you both to the lake of fire. So Matthew 23, 15. So many people say, Wayne, okay, all right. My, my granny is not following God's commandments, but it's because she was taught wrong, and God won't hold it against her because she was taught wrong, right? But look at what this verse says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrite means what? It means actor. They pretend to be righteous, but they're not. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, that's one Gentile who converts to Judaism, to follow the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees, not God. 
And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So what is the destination of the scribes, the Pharisees, and their converts who follow their teachings? What did Messiah say in Matthew 15 and Mark 7? Your, your religion is what? Vain if it's based upon what? Let's go look. Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, 8, and 9. Reads the same in Mark chapter 7. Matthew 15, verses 7, 8, and 9. Hypocrites. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. That is, they call me Lord, Lord. Just think of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. And honor me with their lips. They call me Lord, Lord. But their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Messiah's own words say, if your doctrine is based upon man-made commandments, not the commandments of God, what's it worth? Nothing. People go, Wayne, that's not fair. Well, Scripture says, don't tell God he's not fair. God is always fair. All right, back to Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 2. Take them where they sacrifice the children to Moloch. The pagan god Moloch, do you know what the name means? It comes from the word for king. It is the pagan god that they worship as their king, their ruler. means king. Uh -huh. Moloch, same as Melech in Hebrew. Yeah. Verse 3, and say. Say to whom? The elders of the people and the elders of the priests. Where are they standing? In the Hinnom Valley. There's fire everywhere. Talk about a backdrop that's going to open people's eyes. And say here. That word here is a command. And it's plural. Meaning all y'all hear, listen, and obey. The Hebrew word hear also is the word for obey. Hear the word of the Lord. So he wants them to hear it and then what? Do it. Hear it and do it. O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, what does that phrase mean? means there's an end times element to it, but it also refers to the fact that the Lord's leading the armies of heaven in judgment. So it's a threat of judgment, and it's not a veiled threat. It's very much an unveiled threat. The God of Israel. Behold. Does the word behold mean what follows is irrelevant? Don't pay it any mind? Or does it mean this is really important? Don't you miss it? Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. What's that mean? It means that the judgment that's going to be pronounced is so painful to hear, it's like it makes the ears bleed. Oh my. Oh my. The word catastrophe there is the Hebrew word ra'ah. 
R-A apostrophe A-H, which is the Hebrew word 7451, and it literally means evil. So I will bring such an evil on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. It's talking about the Babylonians coming in and destroying every living person. Destroying every single building, looting the temple of God, and burning down the gates of Jerusalem. God doesn't do evil, but he's not going to stop the Babylonians from doing the evil. Could God stop Babylon from coming and destroying everything? Of course he could. But he's going to show them his back and not his face. Ooh. I will bring is not exactly a good translation. It's I am bringing. And where's the prophet standing in the midst of a consuming fire burning through the Hinnom Valley? Again, you could call it a veil threat if there was a veil, but there's not. It's just a threat. Verse 4. Why would God do this? Because they have forsaken me. What does it mean to forsake God? Not to obey his commandments. It doesn't mean they don't believe God exists. Turn up to the book of Luke in the New Testament. Turn up to the book of Luke. Chapter 6. Verse 47. I hear so often, all you got to do is call on the name of the Lord. Just say, Jesus, 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 and you're saved, and you can walk in sin, and everything's hunky-dory. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? What do you think he means by that? If you're going to call him Lord, then you should be obedient. But with their mouths, they express that he is their God. But their hearts are far from him. Because if they loved him, he says, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. Go up to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6. Nope, chapter 7. We'll go to chapter 7. Chapter 6 has a whole list of sins that if you're committing any of these, don't think you're going to heaven. You're just kidding yourself. We'll jump right to chapter 7 because it says who Paul's talking to. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. It means it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It makes no difference to God. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So whether you were born a Jew or a Gentile makes no difference to God. Are you keeping God's commandments? If you are, 
and you're doing it out of faith and love, then you'll please God. If you say you love God and you're not keeping his commandments, what does 1 John chapter 2 say? Then you're a liar and the truth's not in you. But didn't Paul say, well, let's turn to the book of Acts. Chapter 24, verse 14. And let's read Paul's own words. Acts 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. What portion of the law and the prophets did Paul believe? All of it. So when you hear people say, Paul taught us that we don't need to keep God's commandments anymore once we get saved, they're misreading Paul. Didn't Paul say that our faith makes the law void? Turn to Romans 3.31. Romans 3.31 Do we then make void the law through faith? Answer, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Okay, I don't want to get up on my soapbox, so let's go back to Jeremiah 19, verse 4, which says, Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place. What's it mean, an alien place? It means a place where foreign gods are worshipped. Because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. Do you see why he takes them to the Hinnom Valley? That's where the idols of Moloch are where they're slaughtering the children. Did God ever specifically say, don't you dare slaughter your children and put them through the fire? Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 28 through 32. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 28 to 32. It says, observe and obey all these words which I command you. What portion of them? All of them. That it may go well with you and your children after you forever. So how long are we to observe and obey all these words? Forever. When you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you're not ensnared to follow them after they're destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their God's saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. That's why the prophet takes them to the Hinnom Valley. 
God said, don't you ever do this. I hate this. Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. For how long did God say in verse 28? Forever. Do not add to God's commands. Do not take away from God's commands. Is it okay if we exchange one for one? Let's change thou shalt not steal for thou shalt not eat broccoli. We got the same number. No, you're right. God's never going to accept that. Let's go to 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings chapter 23 verse 10. Second Kings chapter 23. We're under the reign of a good king, aren't we, at this point? And it says in verse 10, And he defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Moloch. That is, he destroys all those Moloch idols so that people can't sacrifice their children anymore. And then what did the next king do? He put them all back. 2 Kings 23 verses 26 to 27. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because... Of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel. I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, My name shall be there. Why? Because as soon as those idols were taken away, the next generation put them right back. Went right back to slaughtering the children. In a way, it's still happening today, though. Yeah. And it's used in the same terminology because abortions are done. Chemical abortions are burning the babies. Yeah. So it's it's to the God of convenience of abortion. Yeah. It's the same exact God. Yeah. So why did they sacrifice the children back in those days? Because they didn't want them. Why do they abort the children today? Because they don't want them. If you think God will overlook it, he won't. Yes, ma'am. Can you elaborate on the difference there in that scripture where it talks about Israel and Judah? Yes, Israel is the northern them. kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel went into okay. captivity in Assyria 120 years before the southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity to Babylon. So as soon I always as, think of Israel as his people and get it confused. Yeah. When it talks about Israel and Judah, it's talking about after the death of Solomon, the land was divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom of the north called Israel Super. or Ephraim and the southern kingdom called Judah. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Go to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. Verses 1 to 18. I know that's a lot to read. And it's hard to read. 
but it lets you know the heart of the people that God's about to destroy. Verse 1. And it came to pass in the sixth year and the sixth month on the fifth day of the month as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. It's in the sixth month. What is the sixth month? Alul. That's the time of teshuva or repentance. Verse 2, then I looked and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward fire from his waist and upward like the appearance of brightness like the color of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair and the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seed of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. What do you suppose that is, that image of jealousy? It's a pagan idol in God's temple. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. So God is dwelling over the mercy seat in the temple, while the people set up pagan idols in his court. He said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. That is, you can't enter the temple from that gate without going past an idolatrous image. Which means this house is dedicated to this idolatrous image. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you'll see greater abominations. He says, idols standing in my courtyards and in my gates. That's not the worst of it. Verse 7, so he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. When I dug into the wall, there was a door. He said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they're doing there. So I went in and saw there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. So not just idolatrous images, but pigs, shrimp, lobsters, things that are unclean, decorating God's house. What did they sing about God's house? That it's not a house of holiness. It's to be an abomination. For some, and there stood before them 17 men of the elders of the house of Israel. That's the Sanhedrin. The leaders of Israel. In their midst stood John and Zeah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense went up. Oh great, they're burning incense to the Lord. No, they're not. Keep reading. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. Who are they burning incense to? The idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see us means God doesn't care what we do. He's not going to judge us. He doesn't care. He said to me, turn again. You see greater abominations that they're doing. Worse than burning incense to the idols? Yes, worse. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. That's talking about Baal and Ishtar worship. They're weeping for the 
sun god in God's temple. He said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you'll see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. How does God feel about sun God worship? As in Sunday, Easter, Christmas, these are all sun God celebrations. He said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit these abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Back to Jeremiah. Yes, ma'am. What does that mean? They put the branch to the nose for two reasons. One is so that they can't smell the stench, so that they think the stench is acceptable. And second is they're going to bring their own judgment upon themselves, like throwing a lighted stick into a bunch of straw. Anybody ever grow up on a farm? We had a whole barn full of hay and straw when it got struck by lightning one night. You want to see how quickly it can burn? Sad. Yeah, so we're at Jeremiah 19, verse 4. Uh, we got one more reference we got to look at. That's 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25. Oh. God just wants us to understand God did not destroy the southern kingdom of Judah because he wanted to. He called them to repentance over and over again. He gave them every opportunity to repent. And they thumbed their nose at him. Just put in your notes 2 Kings 25 verses 1 to 26. And we won't read it. Just know that the children of Israel refuse to repent and they give God no alternative but to judge them. So let's go back to Jeremiah 19, verse 5. Open Paran. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal which I did not command or speak, nor did it even come into my mind. Do you know what the word Baal or Baal in Hebrew means? It means husband. Husband. Here is the betrothed of God calling an idol husband and sacrificing their children through the fire to this husband. Put in your notes, Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 to 32 that we just read. It says, when you sacrifice your children to a pagan idol, you really make 
God angry. So back to Jeremiah 19, we're up to verse 6. That was Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 to 32. Remember we turned back there, it said they even burned their sons to the fire, to the pagan gods, which thing I hate. Yeah, in reference to verse 5. Yeah, we looked at it up in verse 2, but it applies here just as well. On to verse 6. Therefore, what does he mean therefore? Because they're sacrificing their children. Where are they doing it? In the Hinnom Valley. Where did Jeremiah bring the leaders? To the Hinnom Valley. There's probably children being barbecued on the idols as he's prophesying to them. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Could also be translated the valley of killing. In Hebrew, it's Ger Ha Harega. Yes. Gay is G-E-Y. Ha is H-A, which means the. Haraga is H-A-R-E-G-A-H. Gay ha-haraga. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 28. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 28. Through verse 34. It says, So you shall say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. Talking about all those idols and such things. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet until there is no more room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah, from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. So in Jeremiah 7, he explains why it will be called the Valley of Slaughter. Because when the Babylonians come in this third wave, they will leave no one left alive. That means no one left to bury. That's why the bodies will just be lying around being eaten by the birds and the animals. Uh. And remember, this Babylonian captivity prophesies the coming day of the Lord. 
Back to Jeremiah 19, verse 7. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. The council there is coming from the false prophets who are saying, God wouldn't do that to us. We're Abraham's descendants. God has to love us. God has to protect us. God says, oh no, I don't. The council will fail. It says, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So it means these false prophets are going to fall in battle just like everybody else. There'll be nobody to bury them any more than anybody else. And their bodies will be eaten by the birds and by the animals. Because there'll be nobody left to bury them. Verse 8. I will make this city a desolate and a hissing. Which means totally devoid of people. And everyone who goes by is going to go, Ooh, boy, look at what happened here. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hissed because of all of its plagues. It's not really the word plague. It's the word for slaughter or calamities. In other words, they're going to go by and they're going to see dead bodies everywhere. And they're going to say, oh my, what happened here? Normally after a battle, you bury all the dead, but there won't be anybody left to do the burying. Verse 9, oh, I hate this part. But it says what it says. Before everyone gets slaughtered, they're going to be under siege in Jerusalem. How many crops are grown in the city of Jerusalem? None, they're all outside. So when the city's under siege and all the food runs out, then we get to verse 9. And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. Talking about cannibalism. I know a lot of Jewish commentators who say that could never happen. Well, it did. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 28. Not only did it happen, but God told them all the way back in Deuteronomy 28 that it would happen if they turn away from God and turn to the pagan idols. Deuteronomy 28, verses 52 to 57. Deuteronomy 28, verses 52 to 57. I'm just going to read verse 36, which starts this whole section. It says, The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. Verse 52 is continuing the results of that captivity. Verse 52, it says, They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. 
And they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, meaning your children, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in this siege, and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. The tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set her soul, the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity, who refused to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter, her placenta, which comes out between her feet and her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the seas and desperate straits, which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. Those words sicken me to read. But God had Moses tell them this before they ever entered the promised land. So that they would know what terrible things would come out of turning away from God to idolatry. And you know what? They did it anyway. And as much as God called them to repent so it wouldn't have to happen, they just kept killing the prophets. Remember what they did to Isaiah? They put Isaiah in a log and sawed the log in half. Because they didn't want to hear the calls to repentance. Go to the book of Lamentations. Who wrote Lamentations? Jeremiah. So you know it comes right after Jeremiah. Lamentations chapter 4. Verses 10 to 14. Remember in the tribulation period, all the fish die, all the animals die, all the trees die, all the grass dies. What's there going to be to eat? Lamentations chapter 4, verses 10 to 14. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury, has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and has devoured his foundations. The kings of the earth and all inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Why did they then? Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in her midst the blood of the just. They wandered blind in the streets. They defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. Go back to Jeremiah 19. Remember, the people still have the opportunity to repent at this point. God has just said, if you'll just keep my Sabbath, I won't have to do this. And the people say, shut up, we're going to murder your prophets. We don't want to hear it. Jeremiah 19, verses 10 to 12, which will be the last scriptures we have time for tonight. Then you shall break the flask, that's the earthenware bottle, in the sight of the men who go with you. 
That's a picture of the destruction of this, the nation of Judah, that southern kingdom. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, that is God bringing judgment. Also a picture of the day of the Lord. Even so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury. Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet. Talking about the utter destruction of Jerusalem. Let's look also at Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel 39. Verses 11 to 20. Ezekiel 39 takes place in the day of the Lord at the battle of Gog and Magog. It says, It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel. Talking about the leader of the invasion of Gog and Magog. The valley of those who pass by east of the sea and it will obstruct travelers because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore they will call it the valley of Hamon Gog. Hamon Gog means the multitude of Gog. Talking about all those invaders in Gog and Magog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Can you imagine how many people die for it to take seven months to bury? Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying. The entire nation of Israel that's left will be burying for seven months, all of them. And they will gain renown for it on the day that I'm glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land. When anyone sees a man's bone, he will set up a marker by it till the berries have buried it in the valley of Hamongog. The name of the city will also be Hamonah, which means multitude. Thus they shall cleanse the land. And as few son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. A great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you're full and drink blood till you're drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, with all the men of war, says the Lord God. So you see what's happened before happens again. Go to Revelation 19 for the battle of Armageddon, where it happens yet again. Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21. Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21. That's why it uses the phrase, the Lord of hosts, in Jeremiah 19, because it's not just an ancient prophecy, but it's also prophecy of the future. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, 
Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you meet the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, which he deceived those who received a mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That which has happened before will happen again. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 13.